Well, good morning. As Eric said, my name is Tony. I'm one of the pastors here. And I am so thankful that you have decided to worship with us this morning as we continue our series on the book of Mark. Now, we've been in this series for quite a long time. We started way back in January, and we have been going so slow so that we can dive deeply into who Jesus is. We're looking at what Jesus did and how he lived. And really, our heart behind the series is that we would step into the uh, sandals, you know, step into the sandals of the disciples as they walked with Jesus, learning about him, discerning who he was, and also figuring out what it looks like to better follow him. And over the last two weeks, we have seen Jesus's power on display. Two weeks ago, we talked about how he healed this little girl who was possessed by a demon with only the words of his mouth. And then last week, we looked at how Jesus transformed this one man's life by healing him and opening up his ears to be able to hear and his tongue to be able to speak. And now this week, we are also going to see the incredible power of Jesus. But interestingly enough, we're also going to see that sometimes seeing doesn't always equal believing. And so that's where we're going this morning. Before we open God's word, would you just pray with me? Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, God, we just humbly come before you today. God, you're the reason that we're here. We want to hear from you. We want to learn from your word. And Lord, I pray that you'd open our hearts to receive your truth this morning. God, I also just pray that you would fill me with your spirit right now. Lord, that my words would be yours and that you would speak through me clearly. God, uh, we're just here to glorify you, to learn about you, and then with the hopes of living our lives more like you've called us to. So Father, please have your way today in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're going to start in Mark chapter 8. We are going to be in verse 1. And as you're finding your way there, just want to give you a little uh, context to where we're at. So Jesus is still on his trip abroad. He is still outside of Israel, and he is in an area called the Decapolis, which means 10 cities. And he is outside of Israel, so he is in a Gentile community. And if you remember, Gentiles, they were not Jewish. They didn't worship the Lord. They didn't follow his customs. So that is where Jesus is. And he's actually still in the same area where he performed the miracle we looked at last week, where he gave hearing to the deaf man. So after Jesus does that miracle, his popularity just grows and grows. And now there are thousands of people who are following Jesus to hear what he has to say and probably also to see an incredible miracle. And so that sets us up to where we are. Mark chapter 8 verse 1, and I'm actually going to read quite a few verses here at the beginning, says this, In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, his disciples, uh, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. 
And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. So let's just stop there for one second. If you've been walking through this series with us, you may be thinking, didn't we already hear about where Jesus fed thousands of people with bread and fish? The answer is, Yes, you have. Anthony actually preached about this a few weeks ago, but this is actually the second time where Jesus does a miraculous feeding. Did you know that? He actually does this miracle twice, which is incredible. Now, in the two accounts, the feeding of the 5,000 and then in here, the feeding of the 4,000, there are so many different similarities in the passages. We see that uh, there's compassion in Jesus' heart for the people. He uses the same things. He's got bread and fish. Thousands of people are fed and there's lots left over in baskets. But there also are some differences. So let's check this out. So the feeding of the 5,000 is in Mark chapter 6. So what scripture says is there are 5,000 men plus women and children, meaning that there could have been possibly 10,000 to 15,000 people. Today, we're looking at 4,000 people being fed. In Mark 6, it's largely a Jewish audience because he is in Israel, but today he is outside of Israel. So it's largely a Gentile audience, people that didn't know or worship the Lord. Back in Mark 6, five loaves and two fish. Today, seven loaves and a few small fish. Back in Mark 6, 12 baskets left over. Today, seven baskets left over. And I give you all of this information because it's going to be really pertinent to what we're going to talk about at the end. So really, I'm setting up where we are going to go. Now, let's just think about this miracle for a moment. The disciples got to watch before their very eyes Jesus feed thousands of people with just a few loaves and a few fish. And they got to watch it twice. Do you think about that? Like two times they got to see Jesus do this awesome miracle and take food that could only feed one family and feed thousands. When I read these biblical accounts, I often think, what would it have been like to be there? Like, what would it be like to be the man who is holding all seven loaves of those bread, right? You're holding on to it, and then you're looking at the hillside, and you see 4,000 people over there, and you're looking at your bread, and you see 4,000 people that you're going to try and feed with that. That would be incredible to me. If you think about the number 4,000, that is more people than live in the community of Ashland. So it's not just like seven loaves to feed all of us in this room, but more than every single person that lives within the city limits, Jesus is going to take these seven loaves and feed them. And there's going to be tons of leftovers. I don't know how the meals are at your house, but in my house, when we have big family stuff, we got lots of leftovers, but our leftovers we can usually just shove them in the fridge. You know, that's what we have left. Or maybe one family takes them. But in this miracle, I want us to understand how many actual leftovers were there. So sometimes when we think about baskets, we think of like, you know, small like offering baskets or, or lunch pails. But that is not at all what this word refers to. 
Because in the Greek language, the word that's used here actually describes like a hamper or like a big laundry basket. It's actually the same word that's used to describe what um, the Apostle Paul goes in as he is led out of a window. So these baskets were big enough to hold a man. So you think that now they've got leftovers, they've got seven baskets that are just full of food. This would have been awesome to see. And for me, I imagine that witnessing that kind of miracle once would have been incredible. But getting to see it twice would be something I believe that would forever change me and the way I trust Jesus if I got to see that. Because sometimes I feel like if I could only, if I could have only been there and saw that, or if I could only see something like that today, then I would never worry about anything else. Like I would trust Jesus fully and forever. I don't know if you've ever felt like that, but when I read this, I'm like, man, if I could see that, I would believe forever, never worry about a thing. But that's why it always amazes me to read about the people that actually saw these things with their eyes but yet still did not believe. And we are about to hear from one of those groups. So look at verse 10. After he feeds them, in verse 10, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Now what that is, that's just another place on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So now he's leaving the Gentile area and he's going back to Israel. Verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. So he gets off the boat and here come the Pharisees. Now these are the religious leaders, the religious elite, and they are not a great welcoming party for Jesus. If you remember, the last time that Jesus was with these guys, they had a pretty heated conversation. Uh, He called them hypocrites to their faces. He explained that these were the guys that were supposed to know all about God and help others follow him. But what he says is that they know nothing about God. They're not following him and their hearts are hard and their hearts are not with the Lord. So he calls them out for anyone around there to hear. And it seems like these guys didn't really get over that conversation yet because they're still ticked, right? And the first thing they do is they argue with Jesus. This is not like a light conversation. They are arguing with him. And what do they want? Uh, Verse 11 says that they are seeking a sign to test him. Now, what we need to realize um, up to this point is that the Pharisees, they'd not only heard of what Jesus had done, but they had actually witnessed it with their own eyes. In Mark chapter 3, the Pharisees are there and they witness Jesus healing this man with a shriveled hand. They were probably most likely there also when Jesus healed lots of other people. And when Jesus cast out demons, some commentaries believe that they were even there when Jesus did the first feeding of the 5,000. And so it's not that they haven't seen Jesus' power. They have. But they want another sign, and they're really looking for something that would prove without a shadow of a doubt who Jesus was. Now, A biblical scholar named Warren Wearsby clarifies what they were really looking for. He says, 
They did not want an earthly miracle such as the healing of a sick person. They wanted him to do something spectacular, like bring fire from heaven. That would prove he was indeed from God. What they were really doing, as scripture says, they were testing Jesus. And so if your Bible's open, look back at Mark 8 verse 11 and really underline or highlight that word test because it's really important to understand what the Pharisees were doing. The Greek form of that word there carries with it a negative connotation. So as it's used here, it means to like test one maliciously, that there was this this negative aspect to what they were doing. The Pharisees, they were demanding a sign to prove um, Jesus was who he says he was. But this is important. It was coming from hard hearts that were already bent on unbelief. Because I actually don't think they wanted Jesus to do a sign. They wanted to watch him fail. Like if you remember, these guys are mad. They're upset with Jesus. In Mark chapter 3, they actually attributed his power to Satan, to like evil, to demonic activity. And so they do not believe him at all. And they wanted him to fail their test, to be revealed as a fake so that people would stop following him. And these guys are so upset. I mean, as you read more of the Gospel of Mark, you see that these guys are just dead set on getting rid of Jesus. They even come up with this plan for his demise. So Jesus knows all of this, and he will not oblige their request. Look at Jesus' response in verse 12. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Now, first off, we see again that Mark specifically points out the detail that Jesus sighed. If you're with us last week, we talked about how Jesus also sighed right before he healed the deaf man. And that was like a sigh of compassion. When Jesus sighs here, it speaks more to Jesus' grief over the constant unbelief of the Pharisees. Those guys who are supposed to be the ones to help others see and follow God. But yet, these guys, they can't recognize the Son of God when He is right before their faces. And so He says, no sign will be given to you. And as I was researching this passage and looking at lots of different commentaries, um, I really like how this biblical theologian, Dr. Constable, explains why Jesus did not grant their request. He says, they refused to, or He refused to give the type of sign that they requested because the evidence that he had presented, like all the other miracles, was more than adequate to convince an open-minded person. He had given plenty of miracles to bolster faith. He would not give a sign to those bent on disbelieving. See, Jesus, if you've been walking us through the Gospel of Mark, he has done so many miracles, so many healings. I mean, he's, he's walked on water. He's fed thousands. He spoke to the weather, and the weather obeyed. Jesus has done so many miracles, and what Dr. Constable is saying is that for a person who has like a humble heart, an open heart, a person that's really seeking God, they would be able to recognize who Jesus was. But the Pharisees were set on unbelief. So Jesus leaves these guys and gets right back in the boat. Verse 13. And he left them 
got into the boat again and went to the other side. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. It's like, shoot, we've got a problem, <laughs> you know? Someone forgot to pack lunch. And the disciples, they're, they're sitting there, they're doing some quick math. Okay, we got one loaf. It's got to feed Jesus and 12 hungry young men. And they're thinking, this is never going to work out. The math does not add up. But Jesus, you know, he knows what's going on. He understands every situation. And look how he speaks to them in verse 15. And he cautioned them saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Doesn't that like, sound a little bit funny to anyone else? Isn't that an odd response? Jesus is like, watch out, beware. And they're like, oh man, we got no bread. <laughs> it's, it's interesting to me, but it also makes me realize how real these people are. Because the disciples... Uh, they are so focused on the whole bread ordeal, they completely miss the fact that Jesus is warning them. They hear Jesus say leaven, or some of your translations say yeast, and I think that's all they hear, and they're like, yep, it's, he knows about the bread. we got to figure out the bread situation. And they go down the bread trail. It seems they completely missed the whole warning. Like, obviously, Jesus is not worried about lunch. He sees that there is a much bigger problem going on that the disciples are oblivious to. So, look back again at verse 15. Jesus cautioned them, and he says, Watch out. Beware. These are not words to miss. They should cause alarm. Like, we've all seen a sign like this, right? There it is. Warning, beware of dog. We've all seen a sign like this, right? So when you see that sign, the goal is that you would read those words and think, I got to be careful. I might get attacked by a vicious animal, right? See, warning, beware. That's why Jesus used those words, because there is a huge, dangerous issue that is going on that he wanted the disciples to get, but they were not understanding it. Those words should cause some, you know, some fear, some caution in the heart, and that's why Jesus used them. So what does he want them to be really careful about? Well, the verse says the leaven, or some of your translations may say yeast, of the Pharisees and Herod. So what exactly is he talking about there? Again, as I was doing some research, um, I really like this quote from biblical scholar Abraham Karuvila. And he says this, The yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod refers to a denial of the truth. It's key there. It refers to a denial of the truth and a hardened unbelief in Jesus reflected in there the Pharisees' response to him. And sadly, the disciples are devouring that yeast as they display their own lack or discernment of Jesus's person. So what this does is it helps us understand. Kuravila helps us see that it's the, it's the unbelief, it's the doubt, it's the false teaching that the Pharisees have about who Jesus is. They didn't believe. They were teaching false things about him. They were teaching false things about what it is to know God. And he is saying that this false teaching, this unbelief, this hardening of the heart is like poison to the soul, okay? So think about it like this. 
Like yeast that's in a batch of dough works through the whole entire batch of dough and it changes it. What Jesus is saying here is that if you allow this hard-heartedness, this denial of who Jesus is to seep into your heart, it will drastically impact your soul. It will drastically impact your relationship with him. And it also seems like the disciples have just swallowed some of the yeast in the previous interaction that they had with the Pharisees. Why do we think this? Because they don't even recognize who is in the boat with them. The disciples, they don't even recognize who's in the boat with them. I mean, they are freaking out about not having enough food when the guy who fed thousands in front of their eyes and did it two times, mind you, is sitting right in front of them. And Jesus, he's aware of what's going on in their thoughts. And so he says this to them. Look back at verse 17. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? When he says that last part, having ears, do you not hear? It's kind of like a throwback reminder to what we talked about last week. Like Jesus has recently healed this deaf man. This man was deaf. His ears didn't work. He couldn't hear. But he is saying, you guys, your ears work. You can hear. Your eyes work. You can see. You've been with me this whole time. You've seen everything that I've done. You've heard everything that I have said. But do you still not get it? Do you still not understand who I am? And then let's keep going. And he says, and do you not remember? Then he asks him, When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you take up? They know the answer. They say to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And again, they know. They answer him. They say, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Now, what I find so interesting about this section is that these guys remember the exact details of what Jesus did, right? They remember the details, but it seems that they missed the significance of what the miracle was all about. Like they can look back and remember how many leftovers were there, but they fail to see that Jesus is not only this, you know, miraculous caterer who brings all this food, They're failing to see that he is also the Savior. He is the one that they've been waiting for. He is the Messiah. Jesus is the one that holds everything together. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the one through whom all things were created, but they are not seeing it. I mean, they knew what Jesus had done but they still haven't grasped it at a personal level. What it means that Jesus is their savior, that Jesus is their provider, and that they have access to him. And then the passage just ends, do you not understand? And so I think that's the question I want to leave us with too. Do we not understand who Jesus is? And as I've been walking through this passage this week, there's kind of these other three questions that just really came up in my heart, and I want to walk through those with you as we close. The first question is this. Have you been swallowing any of the unbelief of others? 
Back in first, um, verse 15, Jesus warns the disciples. He says, watch out, beware, and we should really take notice. We can't just read our Bibles and just keep on moving. Think, wait, no, hold on. Jesus is saying, watch out, beware. And so we also need to be careful of swallowing the lies of unbelief and hard-heartedness. We also need to be careful of that because it can so greatly impact our walk and our love for and our trust in Jesus. And it also happens in a really sneaky way. You know, you're having your conversation with someone and someone says something and it, it kind of like puts something in your mind and your heart. And then once we kind of let that, like, like that poison of unbelief, hard-heartedness, false teaching get into our hearts, then it's like immediately we start to question, okay, Will God actually ever do anything? Is God powerful? Is God my provider? Is God even there? And that's why this is so dangerous. Now, what I find interesting is that if the disciples, they spent all day with Jesus and they were still susceptible to this, how much more are you and you and you and you and me and every single person in this room so susceptible to this? We definitely are. And I want to say this, like when I say, you know, we should watch um, allowing that unbelief to come into our heart. Does that mean that I'm saying we shouldn't engage with like skeptics? Does that mean that we shouldn't talk to people that aren't Christians? Like, absolutely not. We are called to share our faith, to share the gospel, to engage with people who don't know Jesus. But if we are doing that, and especially if we're in an atmosphere that happens all the time, we as followers of Christ need to be also praying and connecting our heart with Jesus, asking him to open up our eyes and diving into his words so that we could receive the truth of it. And we also need to have people, men or women, that are walking alongside of us that can point us back to the truth. We need that as followers of Christ. And so if you're sitting here today, and you're thinking, you know, back in my life, I used to be really passionate about Jesus. I used to fully trust him, but now you're sitting here and you're like, ah, I just don't feel like that anymore. There could be lots of reasons for that, but one of them could just be the fact that you've swallowed a lot of unbelief and false teaching and hard-heartedness, and you've just taken it in, and now it is impacting you. If that is you, here's my challenge. I really do, like I was just saying, come before Jesus and just ask him to reveal the truth to your heart. Also, make the intentional choice to dive deeply into God's word and allow the Holy Spirit to bring the truth of it to your heart and get some people to walk alongside of you that can pray for you and that can lead you towards the truth. And if you've got questions, let's bring them out. Let's talk about them and who God is. So that's the first question. Have you been swallowing any of the unbelief of others? Second question, do you remember what God has done for you? Jesus asks the disciples this question, do you remember? And so if Jesus asked you the exact same question today, he said, if he said, do you remember what I have done in your life? Like, what would you say? Do you remember? Are those things on the tip of your tongue? And if not, here is a couple practical examples. One is this is a practice that I've done in my own life where I actually just sit down, especially when I'm just struggling with something. I sit down and I write out 
all the things that I know that Jesus has done in my life. You know, like I'm writing out ways that he has uh, provided for me or ways that I just knew without a shadow of a doubt that he was comforting me in a way that just didn't make sense in a really hard situation. What is that for you? Maybe there are times where, you know, he's provided some job or provided some house you didn't think you were going to be able to get. Or maybe it's for you. It's just going back to that moment when I first realized the truth of the gospel. I realized that I was in desperate need of a Savior and Jesus came into my life. And I just, what did it feel like to be forgiven and free and feel the peace? I would encourage you to actually take time to write those things out to help you remember the goodness of God in your life. The second idea is this. Just develop a normal practice or a rhythm of sharing what you see God doing in your life. You do this with your kids. You know, you can ask them, um, hey, what did you see God do in your life today? What's God doing at your school? And then you can share with them, this is how I'm seeing God. Make this a normal thing within your families. As you're laying in bed with your spouse, it'd be awesome just to be like, hey, you know what? I really feel like God is working in this way, or I saw God do this, or I know that, you know, God is speaking to me here. If we can develop that practice, we will be able to remember better, obviously, what Jesus is doing, but then also we will be able to see those things more and more and more. And it's what we call around here, we call them God stories. It's just like these little glimpses of how God had worked in my life, and I encourage you to do that. Make that a normal practice in your family where you're talking about what God has done. So if you're having trouble remember, remembering, write it out frequently talk about it. And the last question is this. Do you realize who is in the boat with you? The disciples, they knew Jesus was in the boat with them, but they did not understand that Jesus was God. God was in the boat with them, which meant that they did not need to worry about what they were going to eat because he is the ultimate provider. Jesus is literally the bread of life in their boat with them. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, do not worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear. He goes on to say, your heavenly father knows what you need, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and he will provide all those things for you. You know, even um, when, when Jesus, uh, he's teaching them to pray, and he says, like, give us today our daily bread. This whole, you know, message has been about bread, and Jesus wants us to understand that he is the provider, that we can daily and continually come before him, asking him to provide for us. And I think one thing is that sometimes we just forget, like we know Jesus is there, but we don't often at a heart level, mind level, think, wait a minute, the one that is with me can do absolutely everything, and he is there. You know, this whole idea really hit home for me last week. I have a friend who recently decided to take a second job working nights um, at a store in Omaha to pay off debt faster. And sometimes, you know, maybe that is what God is leading people to do, but it was not what God was leading this guy to do. Because after a couple of weeks, he was just completely tired. He was missing out on time with his family. He wasn't connecting super well with them. It was just like his health wasn't great. I mean, he was just falling apart. And he got to the point where he just had to quit, even after a few weeks. And when uh, I was talking with him, uh, what he said to me really st stuck out. He was saying, I had to quit. 
because I realized I basically forgot about God. I basically forgot that God was with me. And this is the man who has walked with Jesus for quite a while, but what he did was he had this problem and he didn't like lay it at the feet of Jesus. He wasn't praying, God, what do you want me to do? How do you want to handle this? How do you want to provide for me? What he essentially did was, I've got to figure this out myself. So that means I need to take a second job at night. And it just was terrible. And again, maybe that is what God is calling some people to do. But in his situation, it was not. Because it was affecting his health, his family, his parenting, everything. And he just forgot that God was with him. And I loved how he said that. Because I think that we can all do that so quickly, just like the disciples. They have this problem with bread. They think, okay, man, how are we going to figure this out? And it's like they don't realize that Jesus, who takes a small meal and feels 4,000 people, is with them. How often do I do that where I have a problem and I just think, how am I going to fix this? I got to fix this. You know, like we do that all the time and we don't realize that the one that's in the boat with us is the one that can do anything and we actually have access to him. Church, let's not forget, if we've accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior, God is with us in the boat. We have access to the one for whom nothing is impossible. I love that. That's who he is. And so church, just like wrapping up, let's really be wise about the, the unbelief or the hard-heartedness or the false teaching that we just like let come in and just sit within our hearts. Let's be really wise about that. And if you're in that kind of environment, Go for it, engage with them, you know, listen to the Holy Spirit, but yet also come back in prayer. Be back with Jesus, be in his word, have other people walking with you. And then also let's remember what God has done, actually thinking about the goodness of him and then realizing that the one that is taking every single step with us, every single breath with us, is the one that created all things and can do all things. What we're going to do to end our uh, service this morning is we're going to take uh, communion. And communion is such an awesome, tangible example and reminder of who Jesus is and what he did. Because when Jesus died upon the cross and rose again, he provided for us in a way that we could never, you know, do. I mean, he died upon the cross. He paid for all of our sin that if we would trust in him, we'd be forgiven and free. And so as you come up, you think about the bread, think about his body broken for you. As you take the juice, think about his blood spilled for you and the way that he provided for you to be in a right relationship with the Lord, to be forgiven, all shame gone, and ensuring that you'll be one day in eternity with him. So as we sing this song, uh, I just encourage you to please come up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, God, I really, I thank you for your word. God, I, I thank you um, for just the ability to slow down, think about it, take it to heart. God, I pray for people today, if there are people that are sitting in this room that just know, you know, I used to be passionate about Jesus, but I'm not so much anymore. God, if there's people that have just kind of swallowed all those, the lies or the unbelief, I just pray that you would really heal their heart this week, open their eyes to be able to see the truth be able to know you. And Father, I pray for us as a church. I pray that we would live in remembrance of the goodness of you and how you have been faithful. 
God, I feel like there's so many things in this world that want to come up against us to, you know, push us away from you, help us to forget what you have done. But God, even this week, I pray that you'd remind us individually about what you've done and who you are. And then Lord, I just think it would be amazing if we lived in the reality that the one that is with us every single day is the one that can do anything and loves us completely and will always be with us every step on this earth and through all eternity. And I, God, I just pray that you'd like raise up faith within us to believe that that is who you are. You can do anything and that we can trust you. So God, you're good. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.